You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. I was almost sold on something that was just not the right thing at all. When we were young and newly married and naive, we went along to a presentation in a hotel that promised a free holiday if all we had to do was listen to a presentation. And we listened to the presentation. They were nice people, and they had nice tans, and uh, they had showed nice photos on the, on the screen, and it was a very good uh, presentation. And by the end of it, I was convinced that what we should do is sign this piece of paper that would involve passing with sums of money every month, but we would be able to get holidays all the way around the world in different places for free. And we were just paying for these vouchers monthly um, for a long time. And um, all we had to do was find the flights because there were all these hotels, all these things, all this, and it was just so well sold that I was... I actually had a pen in my hand ready to sign. And at that point, I just had this awful feeling in my gut that, what are you doing, pets, you idiot? And I I put the pen down. I looked up at the guy who'd been um, sort of talking to us one-to-one after the bigger presentation. I said, I can't do this. Um, And the the look on his face, because I'm guessing he was commission-based or whatever, I'm, I'm sure he wanted to say a lot of very rude things about me because he invested a lot of time. And when, I, when we, we sort of, <laughs> we left with these vouchers for a free holiday that we'd never use because he still had to spend some money to get there or whatever and it was particular weekends of the year and all that sort of thing or midweek and I was a teacher and it wasn't going to happen. We didn't get the free holiday. We wasted an evening except for the learning experience that we gained by going there and um, as you come away from that experience, you realise that you've been led down someone's playbook. They've, they've been playing you, they've been leading you, they've been taking you step by step, luring you in to something that, for, for me, just felt like at the end of it was just a trap. I wonder if you've ever felt like that yourself, if you've ever felt like you're, you've been sold something that you... Um, you didn't really want. And I wonder if you've ever given in to the sales patter. I feel like we're always being sold something. The the world is always telling us what we haven't got. Adverts basically try to show us all the things that we we don't have. And um, we forget to look at the things that we do have and to be thankful in all circumstances for all the things that we we do have. And it's very easy to get sold. Maybe you've been in sales yourself and, uh, you know, I've had had a few friends who've been in sales and they're not all bad people. Um, Although when I worked in an accounts department, the accounts department hated salespeople. They sort of growl as a salesperson came in the room. Sales. Um, Very much the way people do about politicians today. Uh, hated salespeople. Maybe they're kind of similar. I don't know. Anyway, let's, go, let's not go there, hey? Maybe you've been in that yourself. But the, one of the salespeople that I knew said, you've got to create a need. And he wasn't really saying you're creating a need, literally making them need something. Uh, you, you're creating a sense of need. You, you, you're making them realize that they have this need. And then you come in with, well, I've got the solution to that need. Um, So what's all this got to do with the devil's playbook? Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what a playbook is, first of all, and they they use them in sales. The more I've researched what playbooks are, uh, most of my research for uh, today was done by prayer 
and by reading the Bible. I just want you to know that. But I did a little bit of research outside of that. And um, a playbook comes from American football. So sorry if you're not into American football. I'm not into any sports, so I'm just neutral on that. Um, but I think American football started using talk about talking about using this phrase playbook it's actually a, a literal notebook with all the plays the different maneuvers that might take place for a sporting team but it's used of other sporting teams as well it's a notebook containing a sports team's strategies and plays but it's used the, the phrase is used in sales as well and sales um, companies and departments have a physical literal playbook and it'll talk about the company values it, I mean in my day it would have been a staff handbook but we call it a playbook because it sounds like we're going to go and win something. And so um, it's, it, it might have the staff values and ethos and mission statement, all that sort of thing. But it also has a set of tactics frequently employed by anyone engaged in a competitive activity. And I just had this phrase going around my head as I've been reading the Bible and praying for the church. And um, the phrase is this idea of a, a devil's the devil having a playbook of his own. Digging a bit deeper, what's actually in a playbook? Well, in a sales one, I, I did some Googling, I looked at different things, and there's even advice on what's to put in a playbook if you're going to write a sales playbook. And amongst other things, some of the things I've found, and while I'm uh, talking about this, I wonder if you might be able to just translate some of this and think, well, I wonder if there is a spiritual enemy, and if there was a spiritual enemy, which we believe there is, um, if they had a playbook, what kind of things would be in their playbook? Does this translate in any way? Amongst other things, the persona and mindset of their target audience. And the website I read that had some good advice on it said, you've got to get inside the buyer's head in order to sell. You've got to get inside the buyer's head in order to sell. They talk about the buyer journey, the steps your prospect will usually take before committing. What are the steps? You've got inside their head. Now you're going to think about the first step. They're not going to go straight to a sale. They're going, to, they're going to go through different steps. You might have to ease them in. And based on that, you then concoct or think of or devise a sales process. What's it going to take there's, there's methodologies in doing calls, there's, there's pitching, there's um, selling the product, using, expecting the usual buyer questions and objections, and how are we going to handle them. In the playbook, they'll be, uh, they're going to come up with these questions, they're going to come up with this stalling tactic, they're going to come up with this. These are normal, here's your answer, here's the pattern that you can use, and you train the salesperson. I wonder if there was an enemy who had a, a sales book, a, a, a playbook, if they would have those kind of things ready, if they'd already be familiar with your objections to the devil's schemes, and they'd already be ready with their, their counter-attack. What about in a sports playbook? Well, they'll be talking about what our strengths are. Before we put things in our playbook, we'd be thinking about what are our strengths? And which of these strengths would the opposition already know about and be prepared for? And what are their weaknesses? Where are they likely to be strong in the next game? What else is going on for them? Like maybe they've had a key player dropped or injured or maybe they're tired or maybe they're energised from recent, recent games. What's the current morale like? What are the predicted weather conditions? All sorts of things go into devising a playbook, but you will watch their videos. A lot of coaching now is involved with watching the video of the enemy, the enemy, the opposition. 
I'd like to say there is an enemy watching our video, watching our moves, watching the way we work, watching what we do, and studying us, studying what our weak spots are. There are certain areas where the enemy won't attack me, but he will attack you, and all the way around as well. And they would continue with their playbook in a sports situation, saying, how can we utilise all of this to maximise our chances of defeating them? Well... I've put on the screen what I've already been alluding to. Imagine a spiritual enemy weighing us up. They'd be saying, what is their, the church's or the Christian's persona and mindset? They'd think about the steps they, that's us, might have to take before taking a wrong turn. What processes can we put in place? What are their weaknesses? Where are they likely to be strong in battle? What else is going on for them? Maybe a key player has left the church or maybe there's new converts is there sickness are they tired or are they energized from recent battles what's their church's current morale how can we utilize the above to maximize our chances of defeating them and you might think well john this is all a little bit far-fetched and a little bit heavy as well on the father's day and 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 does the devil really have a playbook is this just not a little bit silly that you'd be saying that well let's have a look at a few verses in the bible it says and i've been using this scripture all year really since january in fact since before january it was on my heart to to focus in on the the um the the full armor of god and we spent some time in january and february thinking about the belt of truth and and talking about some of our fundamental truths as 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 a movement and then we in the wednesday night lives we've been thinking about the shields not the shield of faith that might be later on we've been talking about the breastplate breastplate of righteousness and on uh, last wednesday i was talking about our righteousness in christ we need to know that i am the righteousness of god in christ jesus by faith not by works and for some reason, I just feel like, and even Andrew had this phrase um, the end of last year, we, we, God wants to move us from battle-weary to battle-ready. And this raising a hallelujah is part of that. Praise is our weapon in so many ways. Anyway, I'll stick to the point. It says here on Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You think you're dealing with a struggle, with an area, with a sickness, with a problem with an issue, with a neighbour, with whatever it is. Our struggle's not ultimately against flesh and blood. And on Wednesday night, we had a question about, well, how do I deal with this person who, you know, I, I know I'm the righteous in Christ. And we're talking about, then we started moving towards the next talk, which is going to be about practical righteousness. Because it's one thing to know you're righteous, and that's fine, my sins are forgiven. But we've got to work that out in, in practical ways. And someone was asking about, well, how do I deal with this situation in a, in a righteous way? And, and what didn't really come out all the time in the, in the answers that were, were offered, and, and I thought more about afterwards, to be honest, was this idea that actually the, the thing you're going through isn't just in, na- in the natural. There is an enemy. Our battle isn't just against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's a battle. And in every battle, both sides has strategy otherwise one side loses very quickly the enemy has a playbook don't worry it's not all doom and gloom it's going to be okay we're here to win all right just thought i'd give you that bit of encouragement paul tells the ephesians not to let the devil have a foothold amongst the church 
And he says to the Corinthians, we are not aware of his schemes. In John 10.10, we like the second half of this verse and we quote it frequently, I have come that they might have life and have life to the full. But it starts by saying, the the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The enemy has a plan. He's not just a bad fallen angel with just abiding his time. He comes with a strategy to steal, to kill and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and life to the full and we thank God that we are on the winning team. But likewise, we can't just sit around biding our time. Andrea said earlier, um, are we here just as a social club? Otherwise, what's the point? We're here as a church. We're here to do battle. I believe we are here to win. We're here to win Brixham for Jesus. We are here to win, but there is a battle. We have to engage with the battle. To continue with sporting analogies, we're not here just to sit on the bench. We're not here to be on the sideline. There is a battle. We have to take part in it. We have to take part because otherwise the enemy will, will, will get us down in some way or another. He'll find a way. And I'm going to talk, at the very end, I'm going to talk about four areas that I think he has in his playbook. There's probably loads more. You could probably think of some from your own testimonies, from your own experience, from your own reading of the Bible. But I've just got four that I wanted to very quickly mention, and I will be talking about them in the future uh, talks that I get an opportunity to talk to you in. The final verse I put on the screen was, be alert and of sober mind. That's like clear-minded. Be clear about this. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So does the enemy have a playbook? You bet he does. Absolutely he does. And I think very often it's, it's not PC these days to talk. I know I, I spent a long time in... Um, various churches of various denominations and, the, and there are plenty of Christians who don't really like to talk about the devil or the demonic. Some of them quite like talking about their own guardian angel but they don't like the idea of talking about the devil or the demonic or anything like that but it's all throughout the Bible. It's there. If we're going to believe in all of the Bible we have to believe that the devil is real and we have to be prepared for whatever he has planned. But the, the, the Bible also says we're not unaware of his scheme we also know that his days are numbered. We also know that he's just a fallen angel and the, the ever-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe has his own playbook too. And he wins. He has already won. We've already won the battle. But in the meantime, we've got some work to do. So God's playbook, we might as well talk about that then. Let's, now, you're going to have to forgive me because I've really whittled this down and made it oversimplified. So you might want to put some more stuff in here, but I'm just telling you for now, let's just go with this as a really simplified version of God's got a playbook too. It's all very clear. Number one, save humanity. Number two, come back to earth. Number three, punish the devil. And number four, reign forever with those who believed in him. All right, so that's God's big picture. All right, so just to unpack that, number one, save humanity. As many of you will know, and maybe all of you will know, that we are a sinful race of beings. We are born sinful. We are born with a propensity towards the wrong, the sinful. We've, we've all got good in us. We're all made in the image of God and all that sort of stuff. But ever since Adam and Eve, we have got something wrong about us. 
And Jesus needs to deal with that. If you've got sin in your life, God needs to convict you of that so that you really see it for what it is, so that it's not just a mental assent, it's not just a a mental belief, but you actually realise deep down in your heart that there is something wrong, that a gut level that I need God to deal with, that only God can deal with. Jesus has done with that. He has dealt with your sin on the cross. You just need to accept that. That's what that verse is about on the screen. If you haven't done that, I want to pray with you today because there's no time to waste. The second thing is that Jesus will come back. He ascended into heaven, he's glorified, he's seated at the right hand of the Father and one day he will come back in glory. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He will return. The third thing is when he get to the end of the Bible, you see all sorts of weird stuff, but one thing is clear, that is the enemy that we know, that I'm telling you he has a playbook, but he will be punished for what he has done. And the devil who deceived them, that is the nations, if you read all of the chapter, uh, if you read all the chapter and and all the book, you might get quite confused, but anyway, um, was, because I do, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not a very nice scripture to read, really, but it's there in the Bible, and we believe in all of the Bible. We just don't always like reading all of the Bible out loud. And then finally, his final section of his playbook that I've written, and Lord, you know, correct me if I've got anything wrong here or should have put more in, but anyway, he will reign forever and ever. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. There's a challenge there, isn't there? It's a challenge. It was so easy just to copy and paste the first half of that verse or just get the first bit that I've got there in Revelation 11:15. He will reign forever and ever. Anyway, we've got to endure. We've got to be aware of what he's doing. We've got to fight the good fight of faith. We've got to be full of the power of God. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be fighting for Jesus every day. From the moment we wake up, we need to be saying, Hallelujah, God is on the throne. I feel like poo, but God is on the throne. God is real. He's with me. He's for me. It doesn't matter what I feel like. The truth is in this book that I've got right by my bed because I need it there when I wake up. I need it there when I go to sleep. I need it there when I wake up in the night and I feel like lots of things that I don't want to talk about because it's real. Because I believe at a deeper level than my emotions, I believe and I know that Jesus Christ is Lord and I need to keep myself aligned to that. So we need to be aware that there is a, there is, there is a battle going on and we need to be aligned with God's playbook. So that's all very nice in a way though, isn't it? We could easily just look at those uh, four points. Got Jesus has already saved humanity, that's great, and I've bought into that, so I'm a Christian, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I'm going to heaven. Jesus might come back before I die, that would be great. The devil's going to be punished and will reign forever with him. Fine, that's great. Well, I might as well just sit back and enjoy my salvation then. Yeah? Well, the thing is, we do have a role to play. We have a role to play. So let's have a look at that. Again, forgive me for oversimplifying it. One, love God. Two, love people. Three, make disciples. That's our role. That's what Jesus has told us to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Love your neighbour as yourself. 
When we come together, we're fulfilling some of that role. Uh, Part of loving God is, is when we take communion together on a fortnightly basis. That's another command. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Make disciples. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Baptism is part of loving your neighbor, making disciples, baptism, communion, worship, fellowship, evangelism, training people in ministry, discipling new Christians. That's our role. Love God, love people, make disciples. Let's ask the Lord what our individual role is. What's my role in that? I might not be a street evangelist, but I might be able to talk to my neighbour over the fence while she's hanging out. He might be hanging out the washing. What's my role, Lord? What do you want me to do for the, for the local church? Maybe not even BCC. Maybe helping the Baptist church in the front room. It might be helping some other parachurch organisation. It might be working with street pastors. It might be helping at the Haven with, with Karen Barnett and, and, and just getting involved in, in helping the, the needy in that way. It might be doing what William's doing and helping those in Rwanda. But what's my role, Lord? Because while we're doing that, actually, sometimes we can do all three at once. We're showing God how much we love him by serving him and loving our neighbour. And, and at the same time, some people come and join us along the way and make, we make disciples. That's our role. So we can't sit back and just let God do his bit and say, well, the devil might have a playbook, but nah, the devil's, the devil's squashed anyway. There's no point worrying about him. We have a role to play. And is there time for anything else? If we're going to love God, make disciples and love our neighbour as ourselves, we really throw ourselves into that. Is there any time for any sin, any wrongdoing? Well, if the devil have his, has his way, yes. In the light of God's big picture, God's big plan to come back and do all those great things that I put on the other screen, in the light of all that, the enemy trembles and he works extra hard to pull one or two of us away. And you notice people falling away. In my lifetime as a Christian, I've been in church all my life and I've seen people just talking about someone the other day. Wasn't it a shame that we're still not in touch with that person? I tried so hard to stay in touch with them, but they, they didn't just leave the church, they just left everything. They just made themselves disappear. What a shame. We were in church together. People just sometimes, it happens, it's real. Don't let it be you. So let's finally, before I finish, let's have a look at these four areas that um, I'm going to unpack in future talks. The first one, they all begin with D, isn't that nice? Uh, And you start thinking of others after that, um, but I didn't feel the Lord put them on my heart. Disease, you could put disease on there, couldn't you? Um, And there was another one I thought of this morning. I thought, actually, maybe that is the Lord. Maybe there'll be five. I might put them all in one talk. I might have five different talks. I have no idea, but I do know that the Lord is speaking to us today. And there are some of us that need to be challenged in one of these areas. Distraction, I think I've put the first one. I think that's a really good method of getting someone off track, isn't it? I mean, I know that as a school teacher, you know. The best way to stop someone achieving their goals is, is to allow them to become distracted by the person next to them, by the people around them. Distraction. What distracts us from the kingdom? 
What distracts us from kingdom principles? What distracts us from kingdom work? What distracts us from caring about souls? What distracts us from wanting God's will to be done on earth and and to, to doing our part towards it? Different answers for each of us. But there is a verse that talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, which to me talks about things that just distract us with our eyes. Just They're just physically appealing to the eye, easily distracted. It talks about things that we, that we just crave biologically. If you've got an eating disorder, you just want to eat and eat and eat. There's a reason, reason for it. Other things that we might crave. Pride of life can be just wanting to do it do it myself, wanting to make some kind of achievement, wanting to have something that I can, I can be proud of. These are all distractions. They're, all, they're usually all about me. I'm probably the biggest distraction for me in some way or another, whatever that distraction is. But it's a distraction from God's cause, from God's plan, and from my role in it. And doubt I want to talk about two types of doubt when I come to this. I want to talk about self-doubt. The fact that I'm not really good enough. The enemy, this is the enemy's playbook. This is not just my own mind. The enemy wants me to doubt my own. I should feel like I stand 10 foot tall because of what Christ has done for me. He's just made me a prince. He's made me an heir of the world. He's made me an heir of everything. I'm just... We are heirs with the Father and joint heirs with the Son. Do you understand what that means, what your inheritance is in Christ? And the enemy makes me just feel not worthy. It reminds me of sins already forgiven. Doubt, self-doubt, and then doubt in God. I mean, I've doubted God's existence in my Christian life. Uh, And maybe none of you have had that. Some of you, I've talked to other people, I I was surprised. No, I've never doubted God existed. Okay, that was, that was just mine then. Maybe I, I read too much philosophy. But that's that journey perhaps I needed to go through. But doubting God's existence, but then perhaps, I think more common, doubting God's character. You know, we look at, we look at the evil and the suffering in the world and we, we, we're told that God is a, an all-loving and an all-powerful and an all-knowing God. How can those three exist and evil exist? How can that all line up? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer all those problems, but I do want to address the issue of doubt as part of the enemy's playbook. I think he's got a whole chapter in there in his playbook. The third one is despondency, despair disappointment all come under the same thing delay they all begin with D isn't that convenient I didn't go looking in the dictionary under D for words it just just coincidence that but let's just think about those again despondency despair disappointment delay God just so good at delaying isn't he hey we're all waiting for the promise different promises each and sometimes we're waiting for something he never promised anyway because he just claimed a scripture that wasn't for you and and that's the worst kind of delay because then you've got hope hope deferred which makes the heart sick and the enemy just jumps in and says ha ha then you go then then he'll shuffle to the next page in his playbook doubt see 
So you've got the delay, and from that delay, you, you move into despair or despondency, and, and you, you start disappointment, which, which brings bitterness, and you start saying things that aren't right, and so, so this negativity spreads amongst other Christians, and the enemy's rubbing his hands together. Division. Disunity. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming back for the assemblies of God or for the Baptists or for the Methodists. He's coming back for those who endured, for those who believed in Jesus. But let's not even talk about denominational disunity. Even within the church, it is, within one church, it is so easy to just get swept along with what doesn't even feel like gossip but it's about someone and you haven't checked, checked your facts or you just start to feel that something's not right somewhere or it's so easy it's so easy let's just be aware of it let's just be aware because we've all heard the phrase divide and conquer haven't we it's in the, it's in the, it's in the devil's playbook I believe it is when we first joined the church in Liverpool, um, John Partington was a pastor there, some of you know him. They'd got up to 350 on a Sunday morning. Um, some, some mornings they had 400. And the place was heaving before we arrived. And one of John's elders said, I'm, I'm going to leave and start my own church. And all the other elders felt it was wrong. Everybody thought it was wrong. He took 80 people with him. Within three years, they had a church of three people. And there were empty seats in our church. It's division. It's divisive because he wanted to, I'd say it was the pride of life. He wanted to, I never knew the guy, I can't judge him, but the story goes that he, he kind of wanted to build his own, little, his own little kingdom. It's just division. He'll find ways. The enemy will find ways. And he'll use even spiritual sounding arguments look if you split and start your own church then there'll be two churches you can both grow anyway enough of that I'll talk about that let's just talk about some of the antidotes because let's, let's turn it around and put a positive spin on it um, our response we can have our own little playbook can't we let's have our own little playbook our response number one keep your eyes fixed on Jesus that will cure any distraction. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, like my stupid border collie has his eyes fixed on a tennis ball, every now and then he'll just glance at you and then back at the ball. And it's almost that that's become an image for us as that's what we've got to be like. So it's almost odd the way he's just obsessed, fixated on this ball. And you put it in a drawer and he's staring at the drawer. You have to you have to put it in a cupboard somewhere where he just can't even sniff it. He's sniffing the crack at the side of the drawer, you know, where it would put... That's what we've got to be like with Jesus. Not just by the bed with the Bible and five minutes in the morning and then shut it and then go off and swear at someone who cuts you up in the, on, on the road when you're driving. We've just got to keep fixed on Jesus. I'm not saying it's easy. It is a battle. That's why it's called a battle. So that's the response to doubt, sorry, to distraction. The, the second thing, I've got four points, is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. 
The third one is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And the fourth one, you can guess, I'll leave you to work it out. Well, isn't that true? That When we look at those Ds, if we have our eyes truly fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, we won't have time for anything else. We won't have time for doubt. The, the closer I get to Jesus, carving out time in my schedule to spend time with him, like he himself. I mean, imagine Jesus having to pull away to spend time with the Father. If I, the more I do that, the less time I'm going to have for doubt. Go away, doubt. I don't have time for you. I'm too busy following Jesus. He's leading me. He's, I'm praying to him. I'm talking to him about miracles. I'm talking to him about manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power in my town. Why have I got time for doubt? Because I'm, I'm starting to believe and expect some of these things I'm praying for because I'm spending more time with the Lord who confides in those who are close to him. It defeats despondency because I know I have a comforter with me that Jesus sent and it certainly defeats division because Jesus is not about division. It's easy to become distracted. The disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they were falling asleep and Jesus said, can you just not watch with me one hour? Distracted by sleep, distracted by slumber. And I wonder if some of us just find it easy to just get a little bit spiritually sleepy. It's easy to doubt. Even Peter, who was walking on the water, took his eyes off Jesus. He saw the waves. He saw the waves. He began to sunk. He got his eyes back on Jesus, and he was okay again. It's easy to doubt. It's easy to be despondent. Some of us feel like that lady who, who tried everything, who had this hemorrhage problem. She, she had continuous bleeding and she, she just needed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment because she had her eyes fixed on Jesus. She could have been despondent. She could have been in despair. She tried everything. But because her eyes were fixed on Jesus, she found the answer, she found the cure, and she pushed through and she broke through into an absolutely new level of living. Can we do that? And it's easy. It's easy to divide. It's easy for our family to divide. There's only four of us in our family, but we can split. I tell you, we can split over the breakfast table if we're ever together for breakfast. It only takes one comment, and I'm triggered, and then I'm off. And she's telling me to shut up because I'm responding wrong. It's very easy to be divided. Let's love one another, despite ourselves. Because we're here to win. We are here to win. We're part of the winning team. But we do have to play our part as the part of the winning team. And if we've got our eyes fixed on Jesus and specifically on his work on the cross, we cannot fail. I was praying with someone in a static caravan at a Christian conference and we were interceding for somebody who wasn't there and there was a, a, a real and I don't, I'm not a super spiritual person I, I don't think I am anyway I, I, I don't I'm sceptical of some of the stuff you know I've told you I've probably read too much philosophy so I'm quite sceptical of some so called spiritual manifestations even within our church setting not this particular church group but you know what I'm saying I don't over-spiritualise things, but there was a real sense of spiritual darkness as we were praying for this person. Honestly, it was, 
it was weird. And instead of praying for the person, I just felt myself or noticed myself starting to thank God for the cross. And I just started to thank Jesus for dying. I thanked Jesus for dying for the person I was praying for. And I talked through um, the Holy Week, really, as we call it, the, 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 the stuff that happened to Jesus. And I thanked him at, on every turn. And when I got to the resurrection, something really weird happened. The, the, caravan, the, the, the caravan's door, which was, which was shut but not locked, it flew wide open and slammed shut. And then there was just this sense of peace. I was praying about the cross. We're here to win. We're here to win. So let's pray. Lord, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us not look to the left or to the right and wonder if we should be running the race that the person next to us is running because that's their race. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, even if no one else is running that race. Let us persevere, Lord, because we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and you have sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are your servants. We are your church. We need your power in us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Fill us anew. Fill this place. Fill this town. Flood this place, Lord. And start in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit brixham.church.